Why don't you open your Bibles? We're going to open to Jonah chapter 1. Right, we're going to read the whole of Jonah 1, and uh, it'll be the last time we read this chapter because we're moving on next week. Um, Some of you here for the first time want to make sure you're caught up on the story so far. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh, one of the biggest cities in the world at the time, and also at the heart of the Syrian Empire, uh, the Assyrian Empire, which is pretty brutal. I mean, they, they made the Nazis look gentle. And uh, he says, go and, go and tell them that God's, God's on their case. He says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we, we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? Was it your occupation? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This book, in a way, you think it ought to be about the salvation of a city. I've said to you in the past, Jonah was probably the most successful preacher the world has ever known uh, in terms of his giftedness and ability to touch the hearts of an entire city, a very evil city at that. But as it happens, it's not really about the city so much as it's about one man. The whole thing kind of turns in on itself and becomes about the messenger rather than the recipients of that message. And in some ways, I think that's an incredibly helpful thing for us because you know, you and I, we, when we're looking at the work of God, it's hard for us to connect with what he's doing 
on a massive scale, whether it's in the world, or it's in countries, or it's in cities. It's hard for us to identify with the evil in a whole city and God's message to a city and saving a city. But it's very easy for us to identify with a guy like Jonah because I think we have this rebel streak in all of us, don't we? There is this kind of, it's what the Bible calls the flesh. This innate tendency to kick against the goad and resist what Jesus is saying to us, resist his will, resist his heart. And so therefore, when the book ought to be about what God is doing on a, on a massive scale, it turns in, to, uh, in on itself and becomes about just this one little man and his weakness and his failings, and then how God is working in his life and his heart. And I think for all of us, you know, we, we feel that sense of connection with Jonah. Um, I'm hoping that you're able to identify to some degree with an awareness of your own rebellion. We're not that much unlike him, are we? And also of how God pursues us, what he does, how he arrests our attention, how he changes us, how he deals with us, that he might perform his work in our hearts. So the story so far, just a few things. Simple command, go and preach. Actually, it's a lot harder in practice, but it's a simple command. Simple answer, no way. Turns around, runs the opposite direction. And then a simple response from God. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline, chastise. I'm going to cause you pain. That's what God does. He causes him pain. Now, when we were going through the answers to the, um, the, the people's questions, their responses about the whole salt life thing, what, what is it, what's your biggest objection? What's your biggest question about Christianity? One of the highest on there, unsurprisingly, was the whole issue of, like, of pain and of suffering and of why God allows it. And, uh, and some of the people ask, well, why does God allow people to suffer? And even Christians suffer. And why is he allowing this? And I tell you, friends, you don't even know the half of it. It's worse than that. God actually causes it. When you read this book, you see that God isn't just allowing stuff to happen to Jonah. He is directly involved. He's the one, he's the one whipping up the storm, shaking the boat, causing these sailors to be absolutely terrified in their situation. Now, that obviously raises all kinds of problems for us, doesn't it? We think, why? I thought God was love. You know, I thought God, and yeah, absolutely, the Bible says God is love, but it's not like the kind of hippie love, you know, where you just let things run their own course. God's love is a fierce love, a ferocious love, a passionate love, a love that wants to get hold of you and change you and, 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 and seek your best end, not the end that you would design for yourself, which is never any good anyway, right? I mean, how many of us have made decisions that have panned out exactly like we wanted them to when they, we knew that they were wrong. So things just crumble. Pain. God causes pain. There was a doctor, um, Dr. Paul Brand, who wrestled with this whole question of pain. And uh, he spent years, I think it was decades, out with leprosy patients, particularly in India, I believe. And one of the things he, he, he realized was the reason for which God has given us the gift of pain. You see, when you have leprosy, the problem is not that the disease kills you. The problem is not that it, it so attacks your system that you die of that necessarily, but rather that you lose sensation in your extremities. And people with leprosy suffer because they don't feel pain. They're... They might burn their hand, pick up a hot pot, and not even realize what's happening. 
so that they get infections and gangrene and these kinds of things. And therefore, pain, while it doesn't feel like it, can be a gift. When God is chastising you, it's his gift to you that he might bring about his desired result in your life. It's very hard to accept that in the moment. You read books like this, it gives us some understanding. This is why C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think it's just a shame that it's often it takes so much to get through to us. So we got to a point where God is chastising Jonah. He's afflicting him. He's hurting him. And Jonah got to this moment of confession. You saw it in verse 9 where he said, he says, I'm a Hebrew and uh, I fear the Lord God. Now you think at that point, okay, this is the moment at which God should back off, right? Jonah has given up. He's confessed who he is. He's confessed that he believes in God. He's owned up to his problem. You think, shouldn't God back up at this point? And then we read that God says then that he made the storm even more tempestuous. He keeps, he keeps making it worse and worse and worse. You think, well, isn't that unfair? Shouldn't God back off from Jonah? What you've got to understand is this. If God were just playing with Jonah, you know, like sometimes a cat that catches a mouse. Cats have this psychopathic streak in them. They love to watch the mouse run away and then catch it again, run it away and catch it again, maybe wound it a little bit, just play with the thing, taunt the thing until finally they're like, okay, enough now, I'll eat you, fine. That's how cats like to inflict pain. And God, in his wisdom, isn't doing that in Jonah's life. He's not just playing cat and mouse with Jonah. He's not playing games with him. He has a very specific end in mind for this guy. He wants his total, absolute, utter surrender. So he's not enough with just kind of easy words. It's not enough for Jonah just to kind of turn around and go, oh, Hebrew, fine, I give in. God's like, no way. You think you've had it bad so far? It's going to get a heck of a lot worse. God turns up the volume. He makes it more difficult. The intensity gets sharper and sharper for Jonah until he is absolutely broken. And it forces us to reflect on this. Because friends, here's the message of this part of the book. When you're running away from God, as we said last week, God will allow you to experience all kinds of storms. He'll actively get involved in your life in terms of allowing you to go through pain. And the question, the one question you need to wrestle with is how does he want me to respond? What does God want of me right now? Now this, this last part of the, of the chapter, we're going to look from verse 11 onwards, this last part of this chapter gives us incredible insight into human psychology in, in terms of the two of the, the wrong reactions that happen to this storm. And then also we take a step back at the end and just look at the unique and profound answer of Christianity that comes through in this passage. So that's roughly where we're going. And I want to begin with the first wrong thing that you do. You need to stop making penance for your sin. So here's what happens. Jonah is exposed. God brings his sin into the light. 
That's what God does. He likes to bring us in into a place where it can be dealt with and not allow it to fester in the dark corner of our heart. And then what, what, what does Jonah say? You see what he says in verse 12. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, the first time I've read this, and many times subsequently, I thought, well, at that point, Jonah is just so altruistic, so self-sacrificing on behalf of those wonderful, lovely, loving sailors. He just wants to give of himself selflessly, throw me overboard. Now, what I want you to understand here, friends, is I don't think that's what's going on in, in Jonah's life at all. I think what's going on here is the most subtle and dangerous form of pride. I think this is potentially the point at which Jonah's spiritual life is at its most dangerous. And here's my proofs. Two things. One is this. Did you ever wonder why he didn't just jump off the edge? And why is it that Jonah, he, he tells him, go and pick me up, just like fling me over. Why doesn't he just leap and have the thing over and done with? I think the only answer in my mind is that, you know, there's something about him wanting them to do it for him, him communicating with them, that it's doing something for his heart. I don't think it's self-sacrifice. I don't think it's altruism. There's something more sinister going on in his motives here. And here's my other proof. Jonah knows God. He knows that God is merciful. That's the reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. You find it out in the, in the last chapter. He says, he, this, is his, this is his complaint. He says, I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God. This is how Jonah complains at the, end of the, at the end of the book. He's like, I didn't want to go because I knew that you'd be kind to them. So this is like how perverted Jonah's mind has become. That in this moment, he knows he's in rebellion. He knows he's on the run from God. But the one thing he needs to do, which is come and plead mercy from the God of all grace, who will give grace to a whole city, he doesn't want to do it. So what's going on in his heart? And my answer is this. I think it's the most subtle and dangerous form of pride. It's pride that comes out in three different ways. First of all, in self-pity. Self-pity is the, the instinct that you think, I deserve better than this. And so you, you kind of sit in a hole, relishing your sense of being hard done by. One of the commentators said of Jonah, she said, Jonah prefers death to pleading with God. He prefers to sit in his misery and be thrown into the sea than to ask God for mercy. So there's pride in that self-pity, isn't there? Do you, do you identify with that? I certainly do. I certainly do. I think it's one of the most frustrating, besetting sins that you wake up and just feel so sorry for yourself some days. As though things are bad. You know? And then you know, self-pity becomes a cycle of sin. It allows you to excuse yourself to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. It's pride. It's a sense that I deserve better. So there's pride in his self-pity. There's pride in his wanting to salvage some honor because he's pretty embarrassed at this point, I would imagine. He's definitely lost face because here are these pagan sailors. He ought to know better. He represents the living God. He's a flipping prophet, for goodness sake. And there he is on the run from this, the living God. And he's, he's like, well, maybe if I do this and they'll think better of me. So he's like, throw me overboard. Like, come on, look at me. I, I'll, I'll die for the rest of you. There's pride in that. There's pride in his self-pity and his wanting to salvage honor. And here's, here's the most important thing about this. I think there's pride in his desire to atone for himself. Self-atonement is the instinct in us that says, I want to fix 
my own problems. I want to fix my spiritual condition. And this is where I want to kind of turn the spotlight on our own tendencies. Because actually sometimes it's easier to do penance than to receive forgiveness. Sometimes it's easier to engage in or to accept or to inflict even upon ourselves a degree of misery saying, I deserve this, rather than to receive the forgiveness which comes from God freely. Now, at the very sort of, um, you know, the very kind of low-key end of the spectrum, this can just be, you know, indulging your your, person, your negativity about yourself, I'm so useless, I'm rubbish. Or allowing yourself to sit in a puddle of your own morose, melancholic ruminations and thoughts. I know this can become slide into something very dark for, for many people. It can be how we give ourselves to, you know, an intense desire to achieve things in our life. We're trying to literally justify our existence. It's all just a form of self-atonement. I feel rubbish about myself, so I'm going to feel better about myself by either whipping myself, flagellating myself, or trying to dig myself out of a hole. But at the very acute end, this kind of this self-atonement can, can lead to very sinister things in our lives. It can lead to self-harm. It can lead to an instinct to so despise yourself or feel so unworthy about yourself that you actually want yourself to suffer. It can lead to eating disorders and to anxieties. It can lead to a kind of such a rigorous self-disciplined life that you are suffering as a result of your intense efforts to better yourself and feel better about yourself. Penance is whenever pain is self-inflicted as a means of atonement, as a means of self-justification, as a means of being able to hopefully one day eventually say about yourself, I'm worthy now. And it's mistaken, friends. It's deeply mistaken. I think this is what Jonah's doing. I think this is why he asked him to throw him into the sea. I think he's trying to do penance. I think he's trying to pridefully rescue his own control of the situation. I can at least do this to finally justify myself. And it's so mistaken for a couple of reasons. One is that, brother, sister, you can never do enough penance to cover your sin. There's never enough pain you can inflict on yourself. Never enough misery you can drag yourself through. Never enough broken glass that you can crawl over to atone for your sin. And it's also mistaken for this reason, that the very instinct to want to do that is at its root, at its heart, a prideful instinct. I broke my situation, but I'm going to fix it. I messed up my life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm going to stitch things back together. I'm going to control this. Christianity is not only the humility to admit that we're broken, but to 
the humility to acknowledge that we can't even fix ourselves. This is the beauty of our faith, friends. We hand it all over to Jesus. We hand it all over to him. His blood has been shed. You need to stop doing penance. I think that's the first thing this tells us about how we respond to our conscience and our sin. Here's a second. You need to stop nursing your sin. So, okay, this is coming from verse 13. So the men, Jonah tells the men what they need to do. And I don't, while I think Jonah is wrongly motivated, ultimately, of course, his solution will fix the problem for them at least. And what do they do? It says in verse 13, it says, The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So these sailors, upon Jonah's instruction, throw me into the sea, are very, understandably, very reluctant to do it because they have consciences and they also have just realized that there's a very powerful God out there. So a mixture of kind of guilt and maybe some compassion and mostly just fear of God. Because you, you know how when they eventually do it, they pray to him and say, Lord, don't let us perish because of this act. All of this stuff sort of is, is turned around in their hearts to the point where they think, okay, we've got a better idea. Let's just try and get out of this storm. They start rowing really hard. And God is just looking at them and just shaking his head like, oh my goodness, okay, fine. Let's turn the storm up a little bit more. This is the second time God's cranked up the storm. He's already done it once a couple of verses before. He's like, friends, please give up already. Now, this speaks to me of a, a picture, really, of how we're tempted to deal with our sin. For most of us, there's an attraction to Jesus in the sense that we're drawn to him. We love him. We think he's special. We think we want to follow him. And we want to be his disciples. It's the same as true when he was walking around on the earth. Lots of people came up to Jesus and said, I'd like to be your disciple. Not all of them made it, though. Why not? Because our hearts are conflicted, aren't they? That like the sailors, we know the one thing we need to do, which is throw Jonah overboard. You know, get rid of, as it were, get rid of the sin, kill the flesh, and, and, and be wholly free of this thing. But the one thing we don't want to do is that. We want, we're afraid of God, we're in fear of God, but at the same time we are cherishing and nourishing and harboring something dangerous. Paul described this quite vividly in, uh, in the book of Romans. He said, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's describing the, the conflicted heart. How it is that we, we want to follow Jesus but we also are not ready to take decisive action, to die to ourselves, to repent of our sins, to jettison them completely, and like Jonah, just chuck it overboard, never to be seen again. I was thinking about what this is like. It's like, you know, when we were boys, we used to, um, used to fight a lot. Um, usually, 
no real harm intended, but you know, you, you, you kind of wrestle. And if you're fighting with someone your own age, like I had a couple of friends who were on the same street as me, Ben and Alex, and if we'd ever like wrestle, one of the things you try and do is, is get the person into a position where they're experiencing so much pain that they, they give up. Because then that means that you're, you're the stronger one, right? It's basically uh, MMA, mixed martial arts, UFC, for when you're like five years old. So, um, and you try and get them to tap out and shout relent, relent, or something like that. And, you know, whether it's just pounding one leg, one arm, until finally. Obviously, it's fine when you're wrestling someone your own size and weight, but, you know, when I was fighting with my older brother, some of you have met James. <laughs> he, he makes me look very slim. He's, and he's always been a lot bigger than me. Three years older, stronger, more aggressive, less, less compassionate. <laughs> There's nothing, you know, there is no way ever, ever, ever that he'd let me ever get one over on him. Ever. And uh, I still suffer the wounds from that. That childhood. Now the stupid thing to do is to keep trying, right? The stupid thing to do is to nurture nurture the pride, the desires, the instincts, the fleshly desires to win and to hold on to stuff which you shouldn't hold on to. And it, it speaks to me of a picture of how it is that when we are in this conflicted area where we know we want to follow Christ, but we also don't feel yet ready to obey him in that, you're only prolonging your pain. You just have to tap out. And the sailors are doing that very thing. They're endangering their own lives by not getting rid of Jonah, who is such a vivid picture in this first chapter of, 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 of sin in the boat. He's the reason that they're suffering. Get him out. Kill him, basically. Jesus taught this way because he, he taught that to follow him is not a kind of both-and thing. It's not like you can kind of casually be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus was so aggressively determined to weed out people who are only half-hearted about him that he made it incredibly difficult to be his disciple. I mean, such a contrast with some, some of the ways that Christianity is portrayed today. It's a very low bar. If you come along and sing on Sundays and just, just part of this family, then you're in, friends, you're in. And Jesus says, no way. You want to come follow me, you need to die. He made it a powerful, a confrontational either-or decision. Either me, I'm the Lord of your life, or you can keep sinning. You can keep hold of that self-autonomy, that desire to rule your own life. And our friends, you know, I could go through a list at this point of the kinds of things that I think we all maybe have struggles with and nurture, but I don't need to because the Holy Spirit always is at work when we're talking about this stuff. He's, he's, he's nailing you right now. And if you feel in your, in your conscience what it is that the Spirit is telling you, child, you need to, you need to kill this. I'm trying to warn you as best I can. Jesus gave you an option. It's me or that. He spoke in those stark, stark terms. It's the kind of language you get going on in Joshua when 
Joshua is calling the people to a kind of re-covenanting and re-consecration before God, a special ceremony, a special day when they say, we belong to you, God, today. And Joshua says to them, you know, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the kind of absolute way that the Bible speaks about what it means to be a Christ follower. It says it is absolutely all of you or nothing at all. You no longer belong to yourself. You can't claim ownership of your own life. So the sooner you kill the sin, repent of it, deal with it, push it overboard, the better. You see the same thing going on in the way Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler. When he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to honor your father and mother, and you need to you know, do this and do that. And he says, I've done all those things. He says, ah, oh, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you've got and, and give it away. Oh, just that one thing, is it? Okay, fine. Now, understandably, it says he went away disappointed. Because <laughs> he was thinking, oh, maybe I can be rich and follow Jesus. Maybe I can nurture the God of mammon, of possessions, this little idol I have in my heart, and worship Jesus at the same time, or be his follower. And Jesus says, he looks right into his heart. He wouldn't say this to all of us, but he knows what this guy's idol is. He looks right into his heart and says, no, you need to get rid of everything. Then I'll know that you're serious about me. And he says, he went away disappointed. Either or, right? That's the confrontation Jesus puts in front of you. We need to stop nursing your sin. Nursing your sin is like feeding the cuckoo. Mummy bird cuckoos, whatever you call them, they lay their eggs. They, they, they have this behavior that they call brood parasitism, which is where they, they lay their eggs in the nests of different species of birds. So like uh, the common uh, cuckoo can lay its egg in the, in the nest of a reed warbler. And the reed warbler mummy comes home one day and she's three eggs and she's like, there's a fourth egg there. Where did that come from? She's like, I don't know. Weirdly, it looks so much bigger than the other ones. But she's like, oh, I'm a bird, let me just get on with what I do. So she, she's, these eggs hatch, she feeds the babies and one of them comes out really big and all the other birds are like, is that one adopted? What, what, what happened there? And over time, this baby cuckoo grows bigger than all the other little chicks in the nest eats all of the food, kicks them all out eventually so they all die, and this poor reed warbler has raised a cuckoo without even realizing it. Until eventually, I mean, it becomes laughable when you see pictures of these things. She's got this tiny little nest with this massive overgrown cuckoo inside, and she's this little bird feeding this thing. And this is, this is what it's like, friends, when you keep sin in your heart. You think, oh, I can just hold on to this just a little bit longer. I can just, you know, just feed this thing. It's so cute. No, this is just one of my little weaknesses, my foibles. <laughs> and God's like, no, that thing is going to kill you and everything that you stand for. You hope to have a spiritually fruitful life, well, it's all going to die. All your spiritual children will die. And all you'll be left with is you nurturing your sin, turned in on yourself. Friends, we need to stop doing penance like Jonah. We need to stop nursing our sin like these sailors keeping hold of this man. And we need to chuck it overboard. In the Galatians 6, Paul puts it very clearly to us. He says, he says, the one who sows to the flesh, 
Think of the cuckoo feeding its little babies. Sorry, this, the reed warbler feeding the baby cuckoo. The one who sows to his own flesh, feeding the flesh, feeding your sin, feeding your desires, he says, will from the flesh reap corruption. It's a very clear choice. Brings me to the last thing. Well, what do, we, what do we need? What do we need in the face of an awareness of our own brokenness, an awareness of our danger, perhaps, and of God nailing us and pinning us down and saying, friend, I want you to come and repent. Well, this is what you need. You need a substitute savior. What an extraordinary book this is. How this chapter ends, verse 15, it says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't have little alarm bells going off in your head, then shame on you. <laughs> you should be hearing stuff in there. I'm joking. I don't really want shame on you, but you know what I'm saying. There's a kind of... A near-perfect picture there of the gospel. A near-perfect picture of the gospel. Here are these pagan sailors, and they get saved at the end of this chapter. They become believers in the one God. And the means of salvation is a sacrificed prophet. And this is the kind of thing that runs all through the Bible. These resonances, these echoes, these patterns, which in and of themselves don't always make all that much sense. But when you've sat in and, and marinated in and understood the Old Testament as a whole, and you start to lay these images one on top of another, you begin to build up a picture, a composite picture of Jesus himself. You know, it's like a masterpiece composition by a great composer. These things can last two and a half, three hours, right? And a great composer isn't just randomly letting the music go wherever it will. He has a master plan in mind. And sometimes he'll drop in just a hint of a theme 10 minutes in to the symphony. And then maybe it'll pop in again at 45 minutes. And you never really understand what he's doing with the music until you get to two hours, two and a half hours, and it comes to a great crescendo when those little hints of what he was doing were there at the end in full display. Now, this is what Jonah is like for me. When I read this book, Jesus himself referenced it, said about himself that, you know, he kind of said, I'm, I'm going to be a bit like Jonah. You're going to have the sign of Jonah. Because here in this story, we see we see these echoes, these hints about Jesus himself. There's differences. Jonah's death and Jesus' death. Jesus was perfect. Jonah wasn't. Jesus died for the storm that we deserve. Jonah dies because of the storm he deserved. But there's so many similarities. One man dying in place of us. Substitution. The fact that there's a death and a burial. I think Jonah dies when he goes into that sea. The fact that there's this three days and three nights thing. The fact that his death was a means of assuaging 
the anger of God. The storm dies, doesn't it? When God's anger is exhausted against Jonah at his point of being thrown in. And the fact that this whole experience of Jonah, this death, burial, and a resurrection when he spewed out onto the beach leads to the salvation of a whole city. Whereas, of course, with Christ, it leads to the salvation of many billions of people. Friends, what I want you to understand as we think about the, this is the beauty of atonement. Because the great author who was behind this book wasn't just thinking about Jonah in his own situation and circumstance. He was thinking about what this would preach to you and me. And it tells us things like this. That you can try, you can try really hard to do penance for the things you feel bad about in your life. But you only succeed in making yourself miserable. It takes a certain amount of humility, doesn't it, to accept atonement, the atonement of Jesus Christ, that he paid it all. We're like petulant children sometimes. If you're doing something with your kid, and you may be a bit frustrated at how slow they are, so you do it for them. You know, Seth will tell me, I wanted to do it. And we're like that with God when it comes to our spiritual life. We're like petulant kids. God says, I, I already did it like 2,000 years ago, friends. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying here because Jesus, you know, he already died for you. So there you are putting yourself through all this misery. For what? I need to nurture your own pride. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That it not only frees you from the sin, it frees you from the need to fix the sin. That's freedom, friends. When you no longer have to wallow in your own misery. When you no longer have to inflict hatred upon yourself for the things you've done wrong. When you begin to understand that his forgiveness is free and his love is uncontainable, his passion for you. And it's not so that you can go around thinking, well, I must be something. I must be something special. It's not so that we can go around and indulge in another kind of pride, but it's so that we can go around just knowing we're loved by the Father. He's done it all. It frees us from this instinct to want to do penance. It frees us from the instinct like the sailors to want to just row harder. Now I think what it kind of just forms a perfect picture here of how people want to keep their sin and then try and just be a bit more religious to balance it out. Just row that bit harder. And the atonement of Jesus Christ smashes those efforts. When you look to his death on the cross, one man in your place, it tells you that he atoned for your guilt. Not just the objective guilt, the sentence that God could have said over you, but also for your sensation of guilt. Your subjective realization of your feeling of being guilty. It can free you from that completely. It frees you from your self-harm. However motivated. It frees you from it. If Jesus absorbed the anger of God in his body on the tree completely, why do we need to inflict harm upon ourselves? 
By his wounds you are healed. Frees you from your need to self-improve. The blood of Christ washes away. Frees you from your failure. It frees you, friends, from your strengths. Our instinctive need to justify our own existence. When we begin to see how the atonement works, we can receive it as a gift. He died in my place. I want us to pray together now. I think for some, obviously, your life is more like the sailors that you feel um, you've been unable to make that decisive choice to to give in, relent. And maybe you've never even become a Christian in the first place. Can I invite you? I think it only takes a moment. You can do it right now. Jesus said and called and commanded people to come repent and believe. And uh, it takes an act. It takes a decision. Not unlike the sailors throwing Jonah overboard. And you can do it right now. You really can. And it's my hope, my prayer, my desire for you that you will experience the freedom that comes when you give up. And for others of you here, you know, I, I want to talk sensitively and I've, wanted, I've been aware that we're touching a raw nerve with some of us here because we already feel broken. So why dig around in our brokenness? But you realize that sometimes you have to repent of your efforts to do penance. It's not just that you feel that you're a sinful person or maybe defiled because of things done to you, but you also need to realize that, that God doesn't want you to try and do Jesus' job for him. That all this self-hatred and, and penance and effort to fix your sin is just pride. You're compounding it. You're adding to it. Jonah knew that God is merciful. He just refused to cry out to him. I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast mercy. I knew. I know what you're like. I'm not. I mean, this is what I like. I'm not one of them. I know what you're like, Lord. But why doesn't he cry out to him? Why doesn't he just say, "God, cleanse me, forgive me"? I want to pray, and I want. If any of you feel like this is a moment where you feel like you need to have dealings with God, then take this as your own prayer. Say, Amen. Listen to me. Listen. Get inside the prayer. Make it your own prayer. But let's pray together. Ask God to have dealings with us. And we'll take communion afterwards. And if you have never come to Christ at all, and this is the first moment, my friend, take communion. Take it for the first time. And if you're struck by the need to do penance and to to inflict harm on yourself, take communion as a statement. I'm, I belong. I'm in the family. His blood was enough. His suffering was enough. So let's pray together.
Father, we're very conscious of our weakness. Always. I, there's not a moment goes by, I think, when we're not aware of it somewhere. The disappointment we feel in ourselves, but also the conflict we feel. And we run harder and harder. Thank you, Lord, that you are so kind, so gentle, but also so ferocious in your passion for us that you will not let us go. Lord, I want to pray first of all for those here who are, are aware that the time has come that they need to throw Jonah overboard and surrender. I ask you, Father, bring, bring them to their knees. Bring them to a point where they can say, Lord, that you really are Lord and to give their life to you entirely. I pray, Father, for those here who have been in cycles of self-loathing and the prideful instinct to fix and to control our own lives. Lord God, I'm asking you for something in terms of just a release and a freedom today to not indulge this anymore, to not feed it anymore, to not want to make ourselves better anymore but to accept that the blood of Jesus washes away. It cleanses us. So we turn our hearts to you and say, living God, we praise you for the perfection of your plan. That you were whispering to us through the centuries when you told these stories and in them there were these echoes of the great death, burial and resurrection of your son Jesus. An all-sufficient death, a death that would accomplish what no other death could accomplish. We come to you again wanting to eat the bread, drink the wine. With faith. With acceptance. With humility to say, Lord Jesus, thank you, you've done it all for me. There's nothing I can add to that. Thank you that it's called a remembrance meal and it's in no way a reenactment because it was all done in completion when it happened there and then on the cross. Feed our souls on Christ, we pray. Free our hearts to love him selflessly, devotedly and passionately in Jesus' name. Amen.